If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 13. I'd like to read Joshua chapter 13, the first seven verses. And then as we go down through this chapter in the beginning of chapter 14, we will look at various aspects of the text in turn. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Joshua chapter 13. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. This is the land that yet remains, all the regions of the Philistines, and all those of the Geshurites, from the Shihor, which is east of Egypt, northwards to the boundary of Ekron, it is counted as Canaanite. There are five rulers of the Philistines, those of Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and those of the Avim, in the south, all the land of the Canaanites, and Mereah that belongs to the Sidonians, to Aphek, to the boundary of the Amorites, and the land of the Gebalites, and all Lebanon, toward the sunrise, from Baal-Gad, below Mount Hermon, to Lebo-Hamath, all the inhabitants of the hill country, from Lebanon to mishraphoth Maim, even all the Sidonians. I myself will drive them out from before the people of Israel. Only allot the land to Israel for an inheritance, as I have commanded you. Now therefore divide this land for an inheritance to the nine tribes and half the tribe of Manasseh. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask that you would reveal to us your word, that you would open up your word, that we might be changed by it, that your spirit might make it clear to us. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, much time has passed for Israel. They've spent 40 years in the wilderness, and by our best estimates, perhaps seven years in conquest. And now is the time for them to stop and to take stock of the situation. And so chapter 13 begins a new division in the book of Joshua. We've seen Israel entering the land in chapters 1 through 4. We have seen the battles of conquest in chapters 5 through 12. And now we move on to Israel possessing the land in chapter 13. Now, this is not nearly as exciting. The danger of the conquest seems gone. It seems as if all the problems are resolved. But there is something very important here that we can see from this text. What we can see is the promise of God and that God is ever faithful to deliver on His promise. This promise began back in the day of Abraham where the land was promised to Abraham and his descendants in Genesis chapter 12. 
Moses led them out of Egypt to possess this land, to obtain it. And in spite of Israel's unbelief, God has repeated this promise to them. Over and over, this is just the latest reality. The promises of God must have seemed throughout all of this time to be beyond reality. Could you imagine being an Israelite wandering in the desert year after year? And someone reminds you of the promise of God that you would possess a land flowing with milk and honey. You would be tempted to say, oh, that's never going to happen. I know what it's like. Next year's like last year. Like the year before that. And the year before that. And then as you enter into the land, you say, I know how this works. There's all these fierce enemies. And God has said he's going to give us all this land. Well, that's not going to happen. These people aren't going to just give up. How are we going to conquer them? How are we going to seize this promise? Who would have thought that slaves would build a kingdom? Who would have thought they would conquer a powerful enemy? But you see, this is a good reminder to you and to me that God's promises may seem beyond our reality. But they are not limited by what we think is possible. What limits the promise of God is not limitation of our strength. It's not by what we think is possible. What limits the promise of God is only His will. Now that's important for us. I'm not telling you that what you should do is go home and begin to promise for extraordinary things that are not found in the Scripture. If you try to claim the promise that God will give you Three new Mercedes, don't count on them showing up in your driveway. If you try to claim the promise that you will never be sick, don't try it, because you will get sick. I was reminded of an incident in which, on so-called Christian television, several men were talking about the promises of God and, and claiming them, and they were talking about giants from the past, who believed that as long as you named it and claimed it, you could get it, you could have wealth, you could have health, you could have everything you needed. And the thing that was remarkable about this was the men they were referring to were all dead. That at some point they had become sick. That at some point they had died. And the point is, it is not the promise of God is something that we can rub as a magic talisman to get whatever we want, but what at the same time, we should not look at the promise of God in small view. We should not look at God and what He can do only by what we think we can do. There is a distinction there. Because the reality is, is that God's faithfulness does not depend on us. On you and me. And now, in the story of Joshua and the Israelites, there's no exception. Much had been accomplished by Israel. But there was still a great deal to be done. Verse 1 reminds us of this. There was yet very much land to possess. Now, this is God speaking. Telling Joshua that there is still much land to possess. So, there is still much to be done, and Joshua is old and advanced in age. 
Now, the best that we can tell from piecing together various portions that tell us the ages of folks, we believe that Joshua is at this time about 90 years old. We know in the next chapter, Caleb says that he's 85. So he's at least 85, more likely 90. And that means that he's not likely leading Israel in battle anymore. Now, there is the truth that as we look at the scriptures, a Bible 90 isn't exactly a 2017 Katy, Texas 90. Joshua will live till 110, and most people don't live that long. But still, it's not as if Joshua is a strapping 20-year-old with a sword on his side, able to fight. That means he's not going to be leading Israel in the battle. Now, what does that also mean? There's no successor on the horizon for Israel. When Moses was aging... Everyone knew that Joshua was waiting in the wings. There's no successor to Joshua. As a matter of fact, this will have its own series of problems as we move from Joshua into the book of Judges because there is no man to lead Israel. The Israelites will do what is right in their own eyes and they will sin against God over and over again. At least when Moses was growing old, they knew they had Joshua. And the conquest has had its problems as well. Verse 13 gives us a glimpse of this. It says, Yet the people of Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Mechathites, but Geshur and Maach dwell in the midst of Israel to this day. Now, the text tells us this matter-of-factly, like it was describing the weather. But the truth is that this is a real problem. Israel had failed to do what they were supposed to do, and they were going to have to live with the consequences of this. But that doesn't stop God, does it? You see, this is a good living example to us of our theology. We need to be obedient to God's commands. And incomplete obedience on our part does have consequences. When we fail to obey God, there are consequences in our lives. But that incomplete obedience does not stop God from fulfilling His promises. God is not limited by our disobedience. And there's also, I think, a lesson here for us in obedience. It's that sometimes it is easier for us to obey in a crisis, when everything is before us, when the chips are down, it's that cramming last minute for the exam. It's that typing furiously to get the paper done. It's the finishing the presentation as you're walking into the meeting. There's something about that that brings clarity of thought, doesn't it? Because we know the stakes are there. But it's hard to plod along. And that's what Israel has to do now. They have to divide up the land. They've taken the big fortified cities and now they need to finish the conquest. They need to do the ordinary, the mundane. They need to go village by village, town by town and establish God's kingdom. This is an example of what we need in the church. We need plotters. You know what a plotter is? A plotter is someone who slowly and steadily puts one foot in front of the other. It's not exciting. People don't write articles about that. 
They don't come and interview plotters and ask, how well did you plod this week? But that's how the kingdom of God goes forward. There's a wonderful statement that is made by a friend of mine, a pastor in Michigan, Kevin DeYoung. He says this, What we need are fewer revolutionaries and a few more plodding visionaries. That's my dream for the church. A multitude of faithful, risk-taking plotters. The best churches are full of gospel-saturated people holding tenaciously to a vision of godly obedience and God's glory and pursuing that godliness and glory with relentless, often unnoticed, plotting consistency. Are you willing to do that for the Lord? Because that's how we establish the kingdom for generation upon generation upon generation. We remain faithful. We are here today because of the work of plotters generations before us that we don't even know their names. And yet they have their crown in heaven. Be faithful to the Lord. Are you ready to plod forward in faith with me? The second thing that we see from this text is that there is a struggle between promise and fulfillment. There is a struggle that we have between God giving us the promise and it being fulfilled. There is another effect of incomplete obedience that we see here. It stirs up doubt in us, doesn't it? You could just imagine the Israelites as they look around and as they see the things that haven't gone right. It can stir up doubt as to whether they can finish the course. And that doubt can lead to discouragement. And that discouragement can lead to abandonment. It looks something like this. Well, it won't work anyway. I guess I'll just give up. It can take us down that road. And you could see how God's people could be discouraged even now. They've won a great series of victories, but the land that they are to conquer is still large. That's what the text tells us in verses 2 through 6. And they can see the evidence of their failure right before them. In verse 13, they see these two peoples that they failed to drive out. And they are with them to this day. But also remember, there's the Gibeonites. You remember the mistake there that the Israelites made. And it would not be surprising to me if there are other such failures that Israel has made. That we just have not been privy to in Scripture. So what does God do? We might expect him to chastise them. To say something like, after all that I have done for you, is this how you obey me? Really. But that's not who God is. Instead, he encourages them. You can see it in the text. Now, this is a wonderful example of a text that is difficult for us to read. This is a section that is not easy to get through in the go through the Bible in a year reading plan. Because beginning with verse 8, we see all of the various tribes and the places where they are rattled off in language that we don't understand and words we can't pronounce. But what I want you to see is sprinkled through here. And let's look at a few verses just to highlight them. Look at verse 10. Now again, this is describing all of the places that are a part of the land of Israel. All of the cities of Sihon, king of the Amorites. 
Verse 12. All the kingdom of Og in Bashan. Verse 21. All the cities of the tableland and all the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites. And verse 27. The rest of the kingdom of Sihon, the king of Heshbon. Now, what is God doing here? He's not just describing the name of the place, is he? He's repeating something. He's repeating names. Sihon and Og. Do you know who they are? Those are kings that Israel has already defeated. Do you see what God's doing here? Even as he is describing for them in a very mundane way the place that each tribe will live, he is reminding them of all that he has done for them. Because remember, it was God who defeated their enemies. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 135. It was God who struck down many nations and who killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all of the kingdoms of Canaan. And he gave their land as, an inher- as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. You see, this is how God strengthens our faith. He knows that we're feeble. He knows that we doubt. And he knows that doubt leads to discouragement. And so he strengthens us by reminding us of his past faithfulness. Because when we see and when we rehearse for ourselves God's past faithfulness, we are strengthened. Do you want encouragement tonight? Maybe you have forgotten what God has done for you. Maybe your eyes are fixed only on the problems that are before you. They seem to block out everything else. Well, tonight, rehearse for yourself all of the times that God has been faithful. All of the ways in which the Lord has delivered you, strengthened you, and established you. It won't take much effort. Because our God is a good God. He's good to his people. We're also given a final sign in this chapter of the true inheritance we have. Now, much of this chapter is taken up with the varying tribes being given a piece of land, some dirt. That is, all except one tribe, Levi. Twice we are told that Levi had no land as an inheritance. In verse 14 we read, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. And in verse 33, But to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. You see, Levi didn't get some dirt, not because they were denied, but because they actually had a greater inheritance. The Lord God Himself. The land was merely a gift from God. The greater inheritance of the people of Israel is God Himself. And this inheritance was available to any Israelite. It is the inheritance that you and I have. And this shows How foolish those are who want money, 
health, and other such things from God. You see, the Christian's great inheritance is God Himself. As the psalmist writes in Psalm 73, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When the Israelites had lost everything, and I mean everything, I don't mean that their 401k was cut in half. I don't mean that someone they didn't like was elected. No, I mean when they had lost everything. When the enemy had come in and conquered their land and dragged them off as slaves and as they sat by the river weeping, weeping such that there is a book of the Bible entitled Lamentations. When they had lost everything. This is what was said in Lamentations 3, 24. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. If the Israelites at that time can hope in the Lord as their portion, how much more can we who are so blessed materially by the Lord our God? Our true inheritance is Jesus. And everything that we need comes to us in Him. This should give you great confidence. It should give you great hope. It should allow you to recount the blessings that God has brought to you. For the Lord is your portion. Jesus Christ is yours. Let's pray.